Uh, this morning I want to break from my normal routine, and I do that reluctantly. Um, normally I preach through books, which in an expository and systematic way, and that is, uh, I believe, the best kind of preaching. It's not always the most popular kind of preaching, but I believe it's the best kind of preaching because Scripture itself regulates and balances what you say because you're dealing with the text in front of you, and that's why it's so important always to open your Bible and uh, to to see uh, if what the preacher says is actually coming from the text. But I want to break with that this morning, and I want to start a little series uh, on the church. Uh, And I think it's an important subject, and it's something that needs to be uh, dealt with because the church today is something that people are indifferent to at best and despise at worst. I remember meeting a man who was giving out tracts, and he reached me a tract, and I said, oh, what church do you go to? And he says, oh, I don't go to any church. He says, I don't believe in the church. Well, the church we need to understand is not a human invention. It's a divine institution, and it is God who has put us into churches, and and the church is uh, a very important institution when it comes to the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of Christianity uh, in our world. Now, there are many metaphors that the New Testament employs when it comes to describing the church. The church is a family. It's seen as a plant, a priesthood, a flock. But perhaps the three most common metaphors that are used to describe the church are these, that the church is a, a building, a body, and a bride. And that's what we want to look at this morning. First of all, the church is a building. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse, uh, beginning to read at verse 4 through to 6. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in these verses, the apostle Peter likens Christians to living stones who together are being built into a building. Now, it's clear from the context that he has a particular building in mind. He speaks of a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, in the Old Testament, priests and sacrifices were associated with one building, and that was the temple. There are God-ordained priests offered up God-ordained sacrifices in God's ordained place. Now, that is a theme that is picked up in several places by the Apostle Paul, that the the church is the temple. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, when uh, Paul is writing about the church, the local church, he says, but do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, Paul uses the second uh, person plural. So, the authorized version translates that as ye, you plural. 
Um, the NIV translates it, you yourselves, to capture that idea, because ye is not a word that we use today, to capture the idea that it's not one person or one building, but it's the people together. If the NIV was really the Northern Ireland version, then we could translate it as use. Use are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but that wouldn't go down well in the rest of the world. Now, this is vitally important. These Corinthians were fighting and bickering among themselves, divided from top to bottom, and yet Paul wants them to realize that they together are God's temple, God's dwelling place, and they must treat the assembled uh, congregation with reverence and respect. Now, don't misunderstand here, please. Paul is not speaking of a building in which the Corinthians met uh, as some kind of sacred holy place comparable to the, testament, to the temple in the Old Testament. He's speaking of their gatherings, their assembly. He is saying that when you gather together, God is dwelling among you just as He dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament. Sometimes you hear people pray, thank you, Lord, for bringing us into your house. Now, when we pray like that, we're not referring to bricks and to, to walls and to this roof. This is in God's house. This is simply a building. It's a, it isn't a sanctuary. It isn't a, a sacred place. What Paul is saying is that we collectively are God's dwelling place, God's house. The assembled congregation is the house of God. So it's perfectly legitimate to thank God for bringing us into His house, as long as we realize that the house isn't a building, the house is the, the people that are gathered. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, if I'm the lad, I'm writing to you that you may uh, know how to behave in the uh, household of God, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, uh, the, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So we are in God's house this morning, not because we are met in this building, but because believing people are met together. At the Beacons meeting on um, Wednesday night, we heard uh, that, that we now, our debt with the bank is now 83,000 pounds, which is really wonderful, although we have a few uh, interest-free loans still outstanding that need to be paid, but, but 83,000 pounds. But imagine we defaulted on that loan and the council came and, or the bank came and repossessed the building, put chains on the doors and put it up for sale. And we had to meet across the road in the car park. Well, we would still be the church. We would still be the household of God. We would still be coming into the house of the living God. When the Puritans, the Covenanters, and the early nonconformists were expelled from their churches in the uh, 16th century, they met in the open air, but they were still God's house. It's the fact that we are met together that we are in God's house. Now, a house, of course, is a dwelling place, um, and the temple is where God dwelt in a particular way, uh, uh, in a peculiar way under the Old Testament. Now, we know that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. Do I not fill heaven and earth? God asks 
in Jeremiah 23 and 24. And the psalmist asked in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will hold me fast. God is everywhere. But under the old covenant, God revealed himself in a particular and a peculiar way in, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, uh, in, above the Ark of the Covenant. God was there in a way that He isn't anywhere else, or wasn't anywhere else. But in the New Covenant, when the church comes together, God is with the church in a way that He isn't anywhere else. The Lord dwells in His church. As we were singing in that song that David taught us, the King is seated among us. We are His church, and He meets us as a church in a way that He doesn't meet us as individuals. That's the same truth that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18, which is, incidentally, a section about the church. Jesus only mentioned the church twice, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in Matthew 18, when he's speaking about the local church, and he says, uh, if, if they don't respond to you going to them individually, uh, establishing it in two witnesses, tell it to the church. And then that wonderful promise where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. So, the church isn't a building, the church is the people, but Please understand that when we're met together, God is here in a way that He wouldn't be if you were sitting at home. I hope you understand that. God is here in a way that He wouldn't be if you were sitting at home watching on the live stream. Live stream is great, but it's not perfect because God is here when we're met together. Now, what are the implications or the application of that? Well, two things. Harm not. Harm not. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, you are God's temple. Uh, Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, these are extremely solemn and sobering words. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If you treat God's revealed presence, the place of God's revealed uh, presence, in a shabbily, carelessly, or irreverently, irreverent way, you are calling judgment on your head. Do you remember that man in 1 Samuel chapter 6? I, as a, a young teenager, used to always wonder about this that they're moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and uh, Uzzah uh, sees some of the oxen stumble, and he puts out his hand to steady the Ark, and God strikes him dead. Why? Because he lifted his hand against the place of God's revealed presence. God was there. Ah, you say, God wouldn't do that in the new covenant. God in the new covenant is a God of love, would he not? He writes to the Corinthians, 
uh, about their division in the body, and he says, this is why you are sick and why some have fallen asleep. This is why you are sick and why some have fallen asleep. God struck them in judgment. Now, we live in days of total anarchy when it comes to the church. You hear of splits, rise, and division, people coming together and not speaking with other members. I'm warning you that if you behave like that and lift your hand against God's, the place of God's revealed presence, you're calling judgment on yourself. Harm not. Second thing is forsake not. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, we're told, uh, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. As I said, God is in the church, not the building, but the people. God is in the church. He's with the church in a way that He's not with the individual. And if that's true, there ought to be in our hearts a craving for the assembly of the people of God. We ought to want to be there. God is in His house. God is in His church. That is where we meet God. And if that's the case, we would want to be in church as often as it's possible to be, not just Sunday morning. Sunday morning, I, my induction in uh, the Balamoney Church. Tom Lawson, who was the pastor of Hammond Road Baptist at that stage, he preached at the, the induction service, and he called the Sunday morning service the conscience service. Now, you go to ease your conscience on a Sunday morning, but there is a Sunday evening service, and there is a prayer meeting, and, and, and God is there, that we're going actually into the presence of God to meet with the true and living God. That, that craving of the psalmist, how lovely is your dwelling place. What's the dwelling place of God? The temple. Well, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts to me. My soul longs, yea, thirsts for the courts of the Lord. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the house of the wicked. God is here. And if God is here, we should want to be here too. That's the first thing. The church is a building. The second thing is the church is a body. Turn with me to, uh, back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 to this great section on the church. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints 
for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint and which is equipped when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This metaphor of the church as a body is the most frequently used picture in the New Testament, and it's used to describe the church both universally, to which every true Christian uh, believes, and the church locally. In the passage that we read together, and in 1 Corinthians 12, which I encourage you to read, Paul gives considerable space to likening the church to a body. Now, there are a number of truths that are communicated to us when the New Testament describes the church as a body. Now, we haven't time to deal with all of those exhaustively, but let me pick up a few of them. When we see the church as a body, we see something of its dignity. The body that is being described is no ordinary body. It's not just that the church is a body of people, a group of people who have the gospel in common. The body is the body of Christ. So, look at verse 11, uh, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up, listen to this, the body of Christ. In the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 12, he says to the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ. Elsewhere, In the New Testament, the church is referred to as one body, the whole body, or His glorious body. Now, that is highly significant. There is a special organic unity between Christ and His church. The church is His body. Do you remember on the Damascus Road when the Lord uh, arrested Paul, Saul? He was on his way to arrest Christians, but God arrested him and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Lift your hand against the church. You lift your hand against me. Strike the church. You strike me. These Christians are my body. They belong to me. They're part of me. The church is my body. And that in itself ought to make those of us who are Christians think. We can't stop the outside world ridiculing, persecuting, and criticizing the church. But the sad thing is that much of the criticism and hostility that the church has to endure doesn't come from outside the church, but it comes from inside the church. As a friend of mine once said, the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. The, the church is often affected by that condition of self-harming. 
where Christians themselves delight to lay stripes upon the body of Christ. But if we understand that the church is His body, maybe we will treat the church with more respect and give it the dignity that it deserves. So this metaphor of the body speaks of the church, church's dignity. Secondly, it speaks of the church's authority. Look at verses 15, verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head unto Christ. Every body has a head, and the authority uh, is derived, in the body is derived from the head. It's all controlled by the head. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 1 and verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. As the firstborn from the dead, all authority is given to him, all authority is derived from him, and he must have preeminence because he rules over all. We're not at liberty to do as we like, to act as we please, to go in any or any or every direction we want. We are to live under Christ and the rule of his word. As Mary said to the servants at that uh, uh, marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, do whatever he tells you. Christ alone is the head of the church. And so we must live under His Word. We must be obedient to His Word because all authority is derived from Him. The the church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy ruled by Christ. So seeing the church as a body speaks of His uh, dignity, His authority, and the church's dignity, authority, and unity. Both here and in Ephesians 4, uh, both here in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, the unity of the body is being stressed. You see that in the opening three verses of chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And in verse 4, he tells us why we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because he says there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one body. Now, that is significant because he is about to tell us that we have all different kinds of gifts. He gives some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be shepherds and teachers. So, in the body, there is diversity. We are different, with different jobs to do, with different gifts to exercise. We function differently in the body, but we function together. Again, Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 12, for just as the body is one 
and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And he goes on and he says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Do you see what he's saying? Just as the body is made up of different parts, hands, feet, ears, eyes, and noses, so the church is made up of different people with different functions and different gifts. But there is nevertheless one body. There must be unity in spite of the diversity. That's why we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The NIV says, make every, every effort. One translation puts it, spare no effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Why? Why should we put that effort in? Because there is one body, and we must do all that we possibly can to promote and maintain the unity of the body. You remember what I was saying earlier about that problem in Corinth? And Paul says, this is why some of you are sick and why some have fallen asleep. God judged them. Why did He judge them? Because they did not discern His body. Now, that's not some mystical appreciation in the bread or of the significance of the bread, because why would He single out the bread and not the wine? They didn't discern the body because when they came together, they were all indulging themselves, and they were forgetting about the poor people uh, in the church around them and weren't sensitive to their needs. They didn't discern the body. They uh, disrupted the body, and God judged them. God judged them. Now, we, we live in days of, of… All you hear now is split after split after split over, over nothing secondary things. I heard of a, a church that was split right down the middle from top to bottom, and they brought in an outside pastor to investigate what, what was the cause of this split. And when they boiled it all down, it was two deacons' wives fighting over a tea towel after the church social. Now, that's ridiculous. And not only is it, it, it ridiculous, it's sinful and it's calling down the judgment of God. You need to be very careful, very careful how you treat the body of Christ. Dignity, authority, unity. And the last thing I think that the body speaks to us of is ministry. Look at uh, Ephesians 4, 11 to 14 again. Verse 11, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like any body, the church needs to mature and grow and develop, to grow spiritually, doctrinally, and God willing, numerically too. Now, the way the church grows is through the members of the body working together. He gave pastor teachers, um, and it's not to give some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers, but it's pastor teachers that there are those who are set aside to 
do the work of the ministry, that they are pastors, teachers, that they pastor through teaching. And their job is to equip the saints for works of ministry that the body might be built up. Now, sometimes we are accused of believing in a one-man ministry. We don't believe in a one-man ministry. We believe in a uh, ever, uh, an every-member ministry. But the job of the pastor, the teacher, is to give the tools to enable the members to minister in the life of the church, that they receive the teaching and the doctrinal foundation that they need to exercise their ministry within the church. So, the church is not a spectator sport. It's not like you, you board an easy jet flight and you have the captain and you have the co-pilot, you have the pastor and the assistant pastor, and they look after everything, and you just sit back and relax and enjoy the flight. That's not the picture. The picture, I don't know if you've been to Belfast. Well, this would have been before the pandemic. And there's a bar on wheels that goes around the town center. And so, it's used by hen parties and people like that. But, but so, it's, it's like a a double-sided bicycle. Uh, it's like a table on wheels, but everybody's pedaling. Everybody's pedaling, and the thing moves forward. Well, that's, that's the picture of the church. Everyone pedaling. Everyone exercising their ministry. To go back to 1 Corinthians 12, just as the body has different parts, hands, feet, ears, eyes, and noses, so the members of the church have different gifts, and they function in different ways. So, not all see, and not all smell, not all walk, and not all talk, but all of those who have… all of us have gifts, and those gifts are to be used if the church is to function properly. As verse 16 says, it's only as each part does his work that the church grows. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 makes it clear that every member of the church, in fact, every Christian has received a spiritual gift. And that gift is not theirs, it belongs to the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, you have a spiritual gift. I hope you know what your spiritual gift is. I hope you haven't drifted through life unaware of the gift that God has given you, because the New Testament tells you, tells me that you have a gift, but that's not your gift. That's the gift that God has given to Balamina Church that you are to exercise for the benefit of Balamina Baptist Church. And if you fail to exercise your gift, you not only impoverish yourself, but you impoverish the church spiritually. So, when the boys were young, uh, and it was Father's Day or it was my birthday, Gail would go out and they would buy, she, she would buy a gift and she would give them, wrap it up, and she would give it to the boys and say, give that to your dad. So, God has given us gifts, but those gifts are to be given away. They're to be used for the benefit of the church. Now, some have very public gifts, and some have less public gifts, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says the parts of the body that are hidden are actually more vital. We speak of vital organs like kidneys and, and uh, liver and the heart and lungs, but you don't see them. They're not outward. They're hidden. And the person that's behind uh, 
uh, the, the church and hidden from the church, not always seen by the church, that maybe have a ministry of prayer or a ministry of encouragement or a ministry of coming alongside somebody, putting their arm around them and opening the Scriptures to them. Those are the vital parts of the church. I told you in the, the prayer meeting that there was a girl came in our by team to Balamani, one of the first by teams in Balamani, and she told me recently, Steve and I have prayed for you every single day. And that was in 1984, I think we had our first by team. Every single day. And it's not going to be Stephen Curry at the front when the rewards are being given out. It's going to be that, that girl who, who was faithful in the exercise of the gift that God has given her. So the church is a body. It speaks of its dignity, its authority, its unity, and its ministry. I hope you know what your gift is, and I hope you're using that gift for the benefit of your brothers and sisters here. The church is a building, the church is a body, and the church is a, a bride. If uh, the, the building speaks of God's dwelling place and the body speaks of the, the unity of the church, the bride speaks of being loved by God. Turn just over a few pages to Ephesians chapter 5 and to um, verse 25. Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing, uh, with, uh, washing of water with the Word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does his church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, that each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, Christ loves the church. The church is his bride, that he has a particular and exclusive love for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He loves everybody. But when it comes to the church, he is a particular love. He is an exclusive love. And so Paul can write to the Thessalonians, and he can call Christians the church, the beloved of God, because they are the apple of the eye, uh, of his eye. He, he loves the church. He loved this church so much that he gave himself up for the church. He loved the church to death. He sacrificed to purchase the church and to bring the church into a relationship with Himself. He loves the church. And if He loves the church, we should love the church too. That's a very simple lesson, isn't it? If, if Christ loves the church, we should love the church too. Now, the, the church isn't perfect. Do you know why the church isn't perfect? Because you're in it. That's why the church isn't perfect. Because the church is made up of sinners. But can, can you imagine, can you imagine um, coming to a husband and saying, I just want to point out a few faults and imperfections 
about your wife. I hope you take this as constructive criticism. She's putting on weight. She's, she's getting a bit older. She's a bit gray. Could you not send her off to retreat and try and uh, whip her into shape? How, how, as a husband, would you react and you respond? Well, you would defend your wife because you love your wife, because you would do anything for your wife, because you will love your wife to death. You will give up anything and everything in order to protect your wife. And when you criticize the church, find fault with the church, you need to understand that you're criticizing the bride of Christ, the bride that He loves. Spurgeon says, the church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out its faults. The church is not perfect, but woe to the man who finds pleasure in pointing out the faults. You see, God's plan for advancing His kingdom in the world is not the Christian union. It's not the Scripture union. All those things are good things. It's not specialized children's ministries. All those things are good things. His organization for advancing His kingdom in the world is His church, and He loves the church. We love the place, O Lord, wherein Thine honor dwells, the joy of Thine abode, all earthly joys excels. We need to take the church seriously. I came across a quote by Kevin DeYoung recently, and it says, the man who is indifferent to the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. Shoots his grandchildren in the heart. And if you go home and you criticize the church and find fault with the church and highlight all the difficulties about the church, don't you blame your children for saying, I no longer want to go to church. You should love the church, and you should build into your children's consciousness that when you come together as a body of believers on Sunday, this is the highlight of your week because you're coming to church to meet with the true and living God. Amen.